Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Cowley and this week I'm going to be taking you through the papers in the May edition. Now, in the Northern Hemisphere at least, we're getting through spring and heading towards summer. The weather is warming up and generally people are feeling a bit happier about some things. And it's a good time for us to reflect back on the winter, which has been pretty tough over here. Departments have been very, very busy. We've had a lot of crowding and there are major political things going on in the UK as well. You may or may not be aware that there's significant issues around the junior doctor's contract and that's taxing a lot of us about how we're going to provide a sustainable service going forward. It's all a bit uncertain at the moment but at the end of the day as emergency physicians we're still there to look after our patients, to run our departments and to do the best that we can and part of that of course is keeping up to date with the latest research and working out how we can improve and how we can understand the job that we're doing a little bit better and I think that's what this month's edition of the EMJ is all about. So there's a number of papers which I think you'll find interesting. And the first up I wanted to talk about this week was a paper by Adrian Boyle and colleagues based around Cambridge, the Addenbrooke's Hospital. And this is looking at the complexities of measuring crowding within an emergency department. And as emergency physicians, we all understand what it means to be crowded. We all understand that there's significant implications from crowding. The phrase overcrowding kills is one that I use quite a lot, and I do believe that it's true. There's lots of evidence out there that when a department gets very, very busy, the patient outcomes are poor, both for those admitted and for those who are discharged. But it's sometimes difficult to communicate that to people who are potentially in the power to change things, and for us to get a feel of of what crowning actually is. And I think there's been some work around the world to try and find objective measures to tell us what the crowding index is, if you like. And so what Adrian Boyle and colleagues have done is they've looked at two scoring systems. They've looked at the NEDOX, which is the National Emergency Department Overcrowding Score, and they've also looked at the SICMED score, which is the International Crowding Measure in Emergency Departments. And they've looked at that together with the staff perceptions to look at ways of, of looking at whether a department is actually crowded. Now, it's a multifactorial perception, obviously, um, because crowding depends not just on the numbers, but on the patient flow, the severity of the patient. So, you know, 10 seriously injured patients in a department would challenge most UK departments anyway, whereas 10 minor injuries wouldn't. You know, so there's a lot of subjective nature to these things. So the idea of putting a score together is, is useful for monitoring, but does it reflect the, the real experience? So they looked at real-time data using the measures, and they demonstrated... Some of the data can be collected in real time, but it's difficult to pick up that hour-by-hour variation, which I think most of us experience. So, although there is work out there that's being done to look at these crowding scores, the current state of play appears to be that these scores can tell us a little bit about crowding, but they lack the fidelity to look at hour-by-hour variation. And I don't know about you, but I find that hour-by-hour variation really quite a factor in determining crowding. So correlation against time, it's it's important. And I think there's a little bit more work that needs to be done here. But I'm glad that people in the UK and around the world are looking at this. If we're to communicate the issues of crowding, if we're able to monitor it and we're able to plan around it, I think some form of objective score may well be useful in the future. Now, I did say I've worked over the winter and I do quite a lot of paediatric emergency medicine, working both adults and kids. And I think anybody who works in paediatric emergency medicine internationally will realise that there's been a, quite a, a significant change in the, the type of patients that we're seeing. And I think most of my colleagues, certainly in the UK, have seen an increase in the number of what we would probably describe as primary care attendances within the emergency department. 
And so I think it's nice to have a look at a paper by Assel Single and colleagues looking at the reasons and the possibilities about why we're seeing an increase in avoidable paediatric ED visits. Now, this is a paper from the US, and obviously there's a different funding model out there, and there's different reasons to come to hospital. But I think it is interesting for us to pick out why these things might be happening. So in this study, they've looked at primary care visits to the ED, and they've looked to find the factors about why that might be. And I think it's really interesting to look at this, that you may be under the perception that it's about knowledge or that it's about um, access to healthcare. But in this study, what they've found is that the strongest association with visits to the ED were about things like food insecurity. And although quite a lot of the patients could have been seen in a primary care setting, it's, it's the economic and the social events around the attendance which actually forces these people to attend. So I think when we're looking at changing the way that we get our attendances in ED, then it's we have to look a little bit more deeply than simply looking around just the medical problems, but involving the social implications. And although this was a US study and there'll be differences around the world, I think it's important that we, we take that principle wherever you're practicing. They also quite rightly point out that access to primary care is important. In the UK, I don't know how that works internationally, but access to primary care is a, is a multifactorial thing. One is about availability, one is about is awareness, and one is about accessibility. So all of those things need to come together for any system to try and reduce the number of, not inappropriate, but patient visits that could be better dealt with in other settings. Because certainly in the UK, we've seen significant rises in the number of paediatric admissions. Staying on a paediatric theme... Of course, not all the patients who come to paediatric AD are primary care patients. Quite a few of them are pretty sick. And there's always been an issue around the ability of emergency physicians or anybody to spot those sick children when they come through the door, because it's very difficult. The difference between a child who's bringing a really nasty septic illness and one who's got a bit of a virus is pretty subtle. And there's been lots of attempts to improve that. And one of those things is around the use of paediatric early warning, warning scores. And they're pr they're really getting quite a lot of penetrance within the UK and around the world now that so that children are getting pews markings when they come in but the difficulty is that you know there's a lot of crossover so the predictability the sensitivity specificity of these tools is worth looking at and that's what they've done this month in the journal so Peter Litos from Imperial College London and colleagues have looked at whether or not the pew scores can guide hospital admission and predict significant illness in children presenting to the ED. So the issue that they've really looked at is that a lot of PEW scores have not been developed or really tested in an emergency department population, which is different to a ward-based or a post-surgical population. And if we're looking at scores in the ED, generally speaking, we're looking for things which have a high sensitivity, so they can be used as a rule-out mechanism. And what they looked at here is in a population of patients look, presenting to an, an urban ED, um, so an urban ED with a special interest in children, so St Mary's Hospital in London, is that it didn't really perform as we would perhaps want a screening tool to work in the ED. So it was pretty specific. So if you were positive for it, then that was pretty good, so about 96%. But the sensitivity was really poor, only about 30%. 
Now that's a problem for me. So, I mean, it still doesn't mean that these tools can't be used because you know, high specificity tools can be used as a rule in, but perhaps it's not going to be used in the way that an early warning score, which is implicit in the name, early warning, it's going to tell you about stuff early, is effective. So the conclusion from this is Pew scores, if you're using them, you need to know how they're performing, but also perhaps we need to think about different ways of using a Pew's type system within an emergency department population because it is different to everywhere else. So nice piece of work, worth a read if you're using Pews in your department. We've also got a nice paper from Tanzania. Again, it's around clinical judgment about assessing people when they come in because systems such as Pew scores and, and biochemical testing and things, they're all the rage. But at the base of any clinical encounter is that ability for a clinician to make an assessment of the patient. So clinical impression, history examination, all of those things which are taught at medical school, which you know in emergency setting are absolutely vital. So there's a nice interesting paper here looking at what they call clinical gestalt and we could debate whether or not this is gestalt or something else but that's a, a conversation for another day about determining the presence and severity of anemia in patients presenting to a hospital in Tanzania where it's a really important um, diagnosis, it's, it's linked with a number of significant conditions and so are clinicians able to identify anemia in this population? So in essence what they did is they took patients presenting to the hospital and they asked clinicians to determine whether or not they were likely to be severely anemic, moderately anemic, mild anemic or not anemic. And interestingly they found that you know, clinicians didn't do too badly actually. Um, from the gestalt estimates for severe anemia were well sensitivity about 64% but a specificity of 91% so similarly again potentially around a rule in but not particularly as a rule out. And the Intra-observer variability between people was pretty good. So, I mean, it's an interesting clinical study that tells us a little bit about clinical judgment and clinical assessment. The figures are probably not perfect enough for it to be definitive. You're still going to have to do laboratory testing in this group, but it might be high enough in terms of the specificity for severe anemia that you could actually start a resuscitation before those results come back. And that might be important in a resource-limited environment such as this, where the study was conducted. One of the pre-hospital papers we've got this month is looking at how we teach CPR performance. So this is a, a study out of Qatar looking at the CPR performances of 149 paramedic recruits. And essentially they taught them in two slightly different ways. Basically in one group they just got the standard package, whereas in the other group they had a more tailored package which was linked to their learning styles. And if you're into medical education, this is a, a debatable thing about whether people really have learning styles. But what they've done in essence, is try and tailor the CPR training. And interestingly, they've discovered that if you do a tailored program, you get better performance when you look at it later. Now, some of that's probably predictable, so that if you tailor something and you make it special for people, then they're more likely to learn. But actually, the outcome is whether or not people can do these things. So perhaps more tailored learning and more spread out learning is something that you want to do. So if you're into CPR training, then you should have a look at this and see what they've done, see if there's anything you can pull out of there for your own practice. So staying in pre-hospital care, but this time back in the US, there's an interesting paper around falls in the elderly, which is a big problem for us in the UK and in the US and around the world. Quite high risk group of patients. And for emergency medicine and pre-hospital care, we, we can see how errors can occur in this group. So simple falls, they can just be simple falls. It's still possible to trip over when you're elderly, but they can be a significant harbinger of, of pathology. And quite a lot of that could be eminently treatable. There's things that you can do. So this is a systematic review by Zazula. And they looked at the evidence for pre-hospital teams assessing and referring patients for referral to fall services. So identifying the group who are going to benefit. 
And although a lot of people are doing this, the evidence base for it is is pretty poor, really, actually. And I think that's a, a bit of a bit disappointing. It's an incredibly important area, and we clearly need some better work to determine whether or not this is worthwhile doing and whether or not it's the right mechanism for us to do, because it is being extended out to a lot of services at the moment. And although the quality of the studies that they looked at and the range of studies they looked at wasn't particularly brilliant, of the small number of studies where they did find some evidence, the effect size of referring people to full services appropriately could be high enough to make a significant difference to our population. So this is somewhere where I think we need more work done. And it wouldn't be too difficult to do. There's an RCT waiting to happen out there. We in Manchester certainly are very interested in the use of early diagnostics for acute coronary syndromes and there's been a lot of work now about detecting myocardial damage using serial troponin testing or even individual troponin testing together with a a marker score and the practice actually varies around the country and it varies around the world and certainly speaking to colleagues in the US and looking at some of the recent papers that have come out there examining things like the heart score have really demonstrated that in certain health economies Simply ruling out myocardial damage is not enough and that people have added stress testing of some sort into that assessment for ACS. And I can see some logic behind that to determine whether or not somebody's got an underlying myocardial disease, whereas the UK or ARPA approach has generally been around working to identify significant risk factors in the short term, which but other things can be followed up later on. So is it really required that we do stress testing for all of our patients who turn up in the, with a potential ACS or may or may not have a positive troponin? And of course, one of the issues is, is that you have a patient who's low risk, who's then got negative troponins, that they are pretty low risk. And then if you didn't do further testing, you potentially risk quite a large number of false positives, which overall might not be good for your patient population. So we get into this idea that over testing patients may in fact cause significant harm. It's it's quite a difficult area and it will require a real look at how we practice as the earlier tests, the troponins, improve over the tests that we used to do years ago, like CKs. So there's a nice paper this week by Aldous. And they looked at patients who were negative for the troponins, but then who went on to have a stress test. Now, interestingly, they identified 34 from 709 patients, so a relatively small number, but they were patients who subsequently went on to require revascularization. So there are a couple of things with this study which are interesting. The first is it's an observational study, part of a, a bigger study, the Aspect ADAPT studies. The second is that I, it looks to me as if they're not using a high-sensitive troponin, so with a new generation of troponins, we might get different results. And it's also interesting that it doesn't necessarily demonstrate that this group of patients have benefited from revascularization because we don't really know that in an observational study. So it's really interesting to look at this. But the, the number of patients who got revascularized was about 5% in this population. And so it would imply that if you're doing their protocol, um, then there's a possibility that there is a group of patients who may benefit from a stress test, but the numbers are relatively small and it's not demonstrated really very well that they would have had a better benefit with it being an observational study. So I think this tells me a couple of things. Firstly, is that the event rate's actually still pretty low. And the second thing is we still need a little bit more information here. And I suppose the third thing is I'd like to see how this performs with the later generation of troponin tests because they may exclude this group of patients, the 5% who went on to get revascularization. Or maybe not. Maybe it'll identify a group who go on to get revascularization, which were missed by this. We just don't know. But we certainly want to see. And there are some studies out there which are specifically looking at this. So we should get some more information over the next couple of years. 
Then just a couple of other papers which I wanted to highlight. The first is a paper from Nicholas Pachansky um, out in France looking at transcutaneous PaCO2. Now, in the UK, we've moved away a lot from doing ABGs because for most patients that we see, we reckon we can get away with a, a venous blood gas rather than stabbing people with an arterial blood gas. But one of the issues has always been that the, the CO2 levels on a VBG and ABG can be different. And that's been an area where certainly in things like our COPD patients, we have stuck with the ABGs because we want to know what the CO2 is. Now, of course, if there was a transcutaneous CO2, that would again reduce the number of people that we have to stab in the artery, which is not a pleasant experience. So this would be potentially interesting, but bottom line is read the paper. Um, but unfortunately, it doesn't seem to work very well in an ED population. So unfortunately, we're not there yet. But if it's something you're thinking about doing or if you want to look at the technology, then by all means, have a look at this paper from Nicholas Pachansky. It's well written. It's well designed. But unfortunately, the result is negative. And then finally, just a short one to look at the management of Acute Kidney Injury in the Emergency Department is written by one of our UK ED intensivists, Patrick Nee and colleagues, and it's just a really good guide, a really good overview of the management of this really quite significant and significant and important condition, which is associated with significant morbidity and mortality in our patient populations. It's a nice little overview, and particularly if you're coming up toward exams, I think you'll find this useful because the Q&A type way that it's been put out, I think is quite a nice way of looking at things. So that's the May edition of the EMJ. I really hope you get time to read it. I hope it, when it lands on your doormat or when you're looking at it online or whether you're looking at it on a, a handheld device or whatever, I hope you get something out of it. We're always interested to hear what you think. The EMJ is going from strength to strength. We're seeing more people listening to the podcast, more people downloading on Twitter and Facebook. So from a social media point of view, we're doing pretty well, but we're always interested in improving. So let's see if we can get some more voices on here and some more information out there. And you know, at the end of the day, Emergency medicine is a challenging specialty at the moment, particularly so here in the UK. But you know what? It's still a great specialty. We still do fantastic things. And, you know, with the help of the EMJ and the information that you get here and constantly learning, I'm sure you'll do the best for your patients. Thanks for your time. Music.